Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In this special holiday podcast, come along with us for an insider's tour of the historic USO, the United Service Organizations. I'm Oliver North, and I'm inviting you to accompany our award-winning War Stories documentary team as we travel from Hollywood to Washington, D.C., and then all the way to a visit with our troops in Iraq. You'll hear stories from great USO entertainers who've been traveling to every clime and place, providing service and smiles wherever U.S. troops are deployed since 1941. Come along as I talk with Hollywood icons and musical legends Mickey Rooney, Johnny Grant, Connie Stevens, Ann Margaret, Wayne Newton, and Bo Derrick. Hear all of them and Bob Hope's son, Tony, share their hearts about what it's like to perform in steamy South Pacific islands during World War II, to the jungles of Vietnam, to outposts all over the world today. My good friend, actor Gary Sinise and his Lieutenant Dan Band were USO headliners in Iraq. If you aren't fired up by what he told me about his motivation to serve our troops, you may need an inspirational transplant. And if you think the entertainment industry is full of folks living soft, listen to rocker Joan Jett tell of her dedication to performing for the troops in places that aren't cushy, in her words. And for all you history buffs, listen to how the USO was formed in February 1941, 10 months before Pearl Harbor, at the request of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He had the foresight to know our rapidly growing military needed wholesome, morale-building entertainment and activities for off-duty hours as bases were springing up all over the U.S. You may be surprised to learn that FDR convinced six organizations, the Salvation Army, the YMCA, YWCA, Catholic Community Services, Traveler's Aid, and the Jewish Welfare Board to band together as the USO. It worked. My mom and dad met at a USO dance in 1941. He was a U.S. Army second lieutenant at Fort Niagara in upstate New York, and she was a school teacher. They married a year later, and I was born in Texas in 1943, all thanks to the USO. Since 1941, the USO has been providing a home away from home for soldiers, sailors, airmen, guardsmen, and Marines all over the globe. Stay with me. This podcast will make you glad to be an American. If you're hiring, you know that quality hires keep your business moving forward. But you also know it can take a lot of time to find the right candidate for the right job. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job on over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. So you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then, ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. 
And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash strive. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash strive. One more time, get it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash strive. Good evening, I'm Oliver North. Welcome to War Stories and our holiday salute to the USO. We're here at a busy U.S. Air Force base in an allied country on the Persian Gulf. In a few hours, Wayne Newton, Gary Sinise, Chris Isaac, and the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders are going to be on this stage performing for hundreds of young American airmen. We'll have a brief respite from the war on terror. Ever since the USO was founded in 1941, American entertainers have been giving up their holidays to bring a touch of home to those who serve far from home. The USO operates regardless of war or peace, and it does a whole lot more than just entertain those who serve in our armed forces. Come along with us for this special episode of War Stories as we salute the USO. I'm most happy to be here and see all these boys. My father told me to always look for a USO if I was ever in trouble. They're just the best audience that you'll ever have in your life. Instead of taking us home, they brought a little piece of home to us. I remember each one of the gentlemen that I met. She had those guys leaving vapor trails. Nineteen forty, Europe was falling under the wheels of the Nazi war machine. France was crushed that spring, and the summer found England with a knife at her throat. As the RAF desperately fought off the Nazis during the Battle of Britain, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed the Selective Service and Training Act of 1940. Military bases popped up all over the country. John Hansen is a Vietnam veteran and senior vice president of the United Service Organizations, the USO. Suddenly small towns were flooded with new recruits. At age 19, George Hayward was a long way from Fordham Road in the Bronx. From the Bronx to Honolulu is a big change. We had never been out of our local areas for the most part. And most of the people I met in boot camp were the same as that. They were 17, 18-year-olds coming out of high school. Nearly 900,000 men flooded into military bases during the first peacetime draft in American history. There was usually not a lot to do in those communities, so... Franklin Roosevelt decided that there needed to be some civilian organization to take care of the morale, welfare, and recreation needs of these troops to keep their spirits up. He gets together a group of organizations. Tell us about who they were. The six organizations that came together were the Travelers Aid Society, National Catholic Charities, the National Jewish Welfare Board, the YMCA, the YWCA, and the Salvation Army. But Washington politics began to interfere until FDR put his foot down. A discussion broke out about whether it should be run by the government or run privately. Roosevelt said it's a private organization that should be connected to the American people, and that's what we've been ever since. If this audience sees steak, they'll come right up here after it. Oh, I don't know. They've seen ham all evening, and you're still here. In May of 1941, he was told to do his radio show at March Field in, uh, in California. He said, why in the world would I go there? What's the point? That spring of 1941, the newly christened USO made one of its biggest and longest-lasting connections with a 37-year-old actor and comedian named Bob Hope. 
He wasn't really enthusiastic about it until he got out there and found out that there was an outdoor show with 40,000 GIs in the audience, and they were the best audience he'd ever seen. They roared at all the jokes. On November 28, 1941, the first government-built USO club opened in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Nine days after it opened its doors, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. The beginning of World War II causes the USO to, to reorient its, its whole mission. The USO reflected the mobilization mentality the country had. If, if a troop train showed up in a, in a jun rail junction, people used up their ration coupons, they emptied out grocery stores, and they fed sandwiches and soft drinks and milk to the, to the soldiers before they fed themselves. Everybody had a part to play, and everybody played their part. The USO facility in Chicago was a place where you could meet your buddies at a certain time of day and go off to do something together, to go sightseeing, go to a ball game, go to a movie. For 17-year-old Elliot Lane from Windsor, Virginia, the Windy City's USO facility, one of what would eventually number 3,000 worldwide, was definitely a home away from home. You could go into town with five bucks in your pocket and go back Monday morning and have about $3 left. Men from all walks of life were drafted or enlisted during those early days of the war. One of them was a former child actor, Mickey Rooney. Rooney was still a huge star, being the number one box office actor from 1939 through 1941. But true to the times, he was anxious to join the fight. In Hollywood, Mickey and his wife Jan recall those times. Did you have to get permission from the studio to join the military? Oh, no. They tried to keep me out of the Army and gave me something that might give me high blood pressure. And I said, you stick that thing into me and I'm going to punch you right in the nose. And they didn't do it. And I was accepted. But Mickey Rooney wasn't the only Hollywood star to get behind the war effort. The USO leadership at the time worked with entertainment people in Hollywood and New York and created a system to deliver entertainment to troops in the United States and overseas. Everybody pitched in, from Hollywood's biggest stars like Bing Crosby, James Cagney, and Humphrey Bogart, to little-known vaudeville acts, bands, and comedians. The shows traveled the world on four different circuits. The size of the tours were broken down into four rough categories, from the, the Victory Tour, which were the large Broadway shows, down to the Blue Tour and the Foxhole Tour, and each one of them was designated by size. There were bases everywhere in the United States, and the USO's mission was to get to as many of them as possible. During its first six months, 24 of these units put on 3,791 shows to more than 2 million men and women, and the entertainment arrived in a variety of ways. What's a Jeep tour? The Jeep tours are the ones that were the most exciting and the most seats are the pants tours. Jump into a Jeep and entertain five GIs or a hundred GIs. Go to a hospital. We played the frontline installations and gave them a show. I'd do my imitations and I'd uh, talk about home. It was a wonderful time at that time, if you can imagine during the war, of being in the Jeep shows and bringing back a taste to home to them. Did you have a writer with you? to? to... Oh no, we'd wing it. We'd get together and we'd hum up a show that would last for an hour and a half. It's important that we make this victory loan the smashing climax of all bond drives. Back at home, Hollywood stars were also used to help pay for the war. 
with the sales of new cars banned and gasoline rationed along with meat, cheese and sugar, the public was urged to spend any extra money it had on war bonds. I'm very proud and happy that I too can do my bit in the war effort. Buying a war bond was actually a citizen's way of loaning the government money as the cost of the war wasn't in the annual budget. And the sales pitch came from some of Hollywood's biggest names. We've got another bond to buy. The war bond drives were wildly successful. By the end of the war, over 85 million Americans had loaned the government over $185 billion. October 3rd, 1942. A year after Hollywood hooked up with the USO, it was opening night at the Hollywood Canteen. Founded by actors John Garfield and Betty Davis, it opened in a former livery stable off Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. The place was so crowded, the only way Betty Davis could get in was by crawling through a window. Do you remember the Hollywood Canteen? Oh, that's where it all started. There were so many wonderful people. My friend Jimmy Cagney, Betty Davis, Jimmy Durante would entertain. I wonder what he'd do with the stick if the band didn't show up. <laughs> 3,000 miles away, New York City had its own version, the Stage Door Canteen. The stage door canteen in New York was a, a big name. The thing that I guess every young man heard of is that they had some beautiful women in these places, but you couldn't take them home. This is singer Wayne Newton performing in Southwest Asia before an obviously appreciative crowd. Coming up, the man who'd be cheered on by troops all over the world for generations, the legendary Bob Hope, puts on his first USO show. Summer 1943, Allied forces push into Sicily and the Japanese take heavy losses in the Pacific. Meanwhile, Bob Hope landed in North Africa during his first overseas USO tour. I wish that I could kiss each and every one of you. Joining him was the beautiful singer and actress, Frances Langford. You want to get us trampled to death, the you kid? We had some bad air raids in North Africa. And they got awfully close, they were right over us, and we were frightened, let me tell you, but uh, we came through all right. In Europe, private first-class Mickey Rooney traveled in a Jeep right up to the front lines. Something special was going on in World War II, where guys like you, who had proven themselves as entertainers before the war, volunteered to do it. Guys like Bob and many of these great Hollywood names went out and literally, I mean, you gave up a fortune. What's the value of money if you're entertaining and bringing joy for everybody for nothing? But the dedication of people like Rooney and Hope came with a price. 37 USO performers were killed during the war, including musician Glenn Miller, who died when the plane carrying him to a show in France crashed in the English Channel in December 44. A few months before Miller's plane went down, Bob Hope had his own close call in the Pacific. In the Coral Sea, Going from one island to another, they crash-landed in the ocean. Jerry Colonna and my father and Tony Romano, who was the guitar player, and they had small traveling troops. Francis Langford was also aboard. We lost an engine, and he said, we're going to have to ditch. And we lost the other engine, and down we went. And uh, they were floating, which is good. And uh, Colonna got out on the wing of the plane, and in that loud voice of his, 
uh, there was a fishing boat about a half a mile away, and they got out and yelled, hello! <laughs> and the guy rowed over and uh, pulled up next to the plane. And, you know, they were starting to try and give sign language to say, you know, we've got a real problem here. And he looked up and he said, got any American cigarettes? <laughs> and just broke them all up. None of us were really hurt, just bruised a little and scared. But that seemed to keep you going. You want to do more, you know. It was on that tour of the Pacific in 1944 that George Hayward saw Bob Hope's show in the Marshall Islands. It was quite a wonderful show, and we enjoyed it. Rather than taking us back home, somebody brought something to us. Bob Hope was away from home a lot. And it totally confused his son, Tony. When I was six years old, I was taken out to the airport because uh, Dad was coming back from the South Pacific. And I'd been to the airport so many times, and uh, I never knew whether he was coming or going. So they were flying in, and I was saying, goodbye, Daddy, (laughs) and waving. That's you, and it says at the Kiel Canal. Well, just doing a show. I think if you look at the picture and you see these wonderful gentlemen smiling and laughing, you know that they're... They're having a good time. Those good times that the USO brought to lonely and scared troops was uniquely American. The Japanese and Germans had no such organized entertainment, for their leaders considered it an unnecessary distraction. Since 1941, 7,000 performers had put on 273,000 shows for an audience of 171 million. But even after the war's end, the shows still went on. In about 1946 or 47, my father was in a uh, barracks of wounded and disabled. And in the middle of the show, a guy from the back said, you're not very funny. And so my father did some quip about that and thought, well, you know, you can't get everybody in your audience or something. something better than that. And after the show, a couple of the doctors came up to him and said, you know that guy who said you're not very funny? My father said, yeah. That's the first time he's spoken in three years. Here's the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders heating up the stage at a USO holiday show in Southwest Asia. And speaking of heating things up, Marilyn Monroe arrives in Korea and makes a frozen war zone sizzle. That's next on War Stories. Don't you get back in the sacky. After putting on hundreds of thousands of performances and providing a little bit of home to millions, the USO was disbanded on December 31st, 1947. President Truman essentially gave the USO an honorable discharge. Thank you very much. You're no longer needed. The war was over. There wouldn't be any more wars. No need. People completely overlooked the fact that there are troops all over the world all the time. In December of 1948, Bob Hope did the first of what eventually became as traditional as tinsel and eggnog, his USO Christmas tour. Staged in Berlin, Germany during the Berlin airlift, the show included Doris Day and the composer of White Christmas, Irving Berlin. No, you've got the name wrong. It's Irving Jones. Irving Jones? Yes, I changed it. Anything over here named Berlin, they cut up into sectors. (laughs) 25 June 1950, Communist North Korea invades Democratic South Korea. In 1950, when Korea started, the USO fired back up and started sending uh, entertainers overseas and 
creating USO centers back around the country and in Korea and Japan. How did you get involved with the USO? Actually, it was through Bob Hope. Uh, I had met Bob, and he kind of took me under his wing a little bit when I was a sergeant in the Army Air Corps. Johnny Grant was a 22-year-old disc jockey from North Carolina when he looked up Bob Hope in Los Angeles. I was out here after the, uh, the war, and uh, somebody came in wanted him to go out to March Field, and he couldn't go. And he said, well, Johnny knows the jokes as well as I do. Why don't you go get together a group? And we did, and that was the beginning. And then we ended up in uh, Korea, and it started. Grant's first tour with the USO landed him in the war-torn South Korean capital. When we came to Seoul, I had never seen such a devastation. It really was like World War II. The buildings were on the ground. I said, we now don't want to got to help our soldiers here. we got to help these people. And the USO did just that. By 1952, they were putting on a show every day somewhere in Korea. They featured everyone from little-known jugglers and comedians to big stars like Mickey Rooney, Danny Kaye, Debbie Reynolds, Francis Langford, and Al Jolson. But even after the fighting officially stopped in July of 53, 3.5 million American troops were spread throughout the world, and they needed a taste of home. This time, the USO managed to survive the peace. The USO does go through tough times, and those times are pretty much mirrored by the peace-war fluctuation that, that the country goes through. 16 years old I was. My father wasn't going to let me go with all those boys over there. Connie's a great little gal. I took her on her first trip. She was so young, I had to take her father because uh, they wanted a chaperone, and he happened to be a bass player. So he put together a, a trio, and uh, they provided the music for the show, and Connie performed. Actress Connie Stevens made a trip to Korea in 1953. I said, I, I don't want to wear pants. I want to wear a dress. And so I walked out and stepped off the Jeep, and the mud was up to here. I never saw so much mud in my life. But Marine Company Commander Elliot Lane remembered the girls more than the mud. In February of 54, we got the word that Marilyn Monroe was touring with a USO troop and would appear at the 1st Marine Division headquarters. And the 1st Marine Division at that time had over 20,000 troops. Obviously, not all could attend. So I made a decision that the younger troops would get to go to the USO show. And officers and, and senior non-coms would uh, forego this uh, pleasure. But this was Marilyn Monroe. Neither the freezing cold nor lack of seats could stop some very enterprising young Marines from seeing one sexy blonde from back home. And they said, sir, is it all right if we go up a Jeep trail on a hill and look at the show from a distance? So we watched the USO show from maybe a thousand yards away. The sound was good, but the vision left a lot to be desired. During the USO show, I had a $15 Jap camera, which I held up to the lens of the VC scope. I took several pictures of Marilyn. You're looking at the actual pictures Elliot took that day. She did a great job. She was just what the doctor ordered. She came riding up in those tanks and wiggling along into the mess halls and all. She just did her thing. And the guys that got so excited, their dog tags were panting, and they were yelling, Marilyn, we love you. And it was a love in, in Korea. 
That's country singer Neil McCoy performing in Southwest Asia on a recent USO tour. When War Stories continues, you'll hear from one of the USO's biggest heartbreakers during the Vietnam War, the stunning Anne Margaret. The Korean War ended in a ceasefire in 1953, but by the late 1950s, a million American troops were still stationed overseas. Bob Hope's USO Christmas tour remained an annual tradition, and in 1960, 30-year-old Don Lane from Richmond, Virginia, was assigned to escort Hope when he and his troop arrived in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. When Bob Hope got off the plane at Guantanamo, he wasn't feeling too well, so we rushed him over to a naval hospital. And they ran a bunch of tests on him, and in true fashion, when they finished the test, the corpsman showed him his EKG, and Bob signed it. With all my heart, Bob Hope. (laughs) And the irrepressible Bob Hope soldiered on. He brought in his band. They put on a great show. The early 1960s were a tough period for the USO. It was so underfunded that by 1962, it teetered on bankruptcy. Then the world's attention turned to a new hotspot called Vietnam. The first Vietnam USO club opened in Saigon in September 1963. More clubs soon sprang up, places where lonely GIs could read, write letters, or make tape recordings to be sent home. Later on, when phone exchanges were made available to the troops, they made as many as 24,000 calls per month. Vietnam was the first time the USO operated a center in a combat area. And as you know, Vietnam, there was no place safe. Bob Hope and his 24-year-old son Tony quickly discovered that in 1964 when they brought his annual USO Christmas show to Vietnam for the first time. The hotel your dad is getting ready to stay in actually gets hit. They've blown up the hotel across the street. They thought we were coming in that day and they were trying to blow him up. When the tour made a stop in Korea Christmas morning, Tony realized just how important his father was to the troops. It was snowing, so I went out early to uh, check the stage, and the front 40 or 50 rows of seats were covered with big tarpaulins. All of a sudden, I noticed out of the corner of my eye that the tarpaulin moved, and so I hopped down off the stage and looked underneath, and there were about 2,000 GIs who'd been there for a day already uh, under this tarpaulin waiting for the show because they wanted the best seat. The morale benefits were just immeasurable. Major Jim Cadigan was a 31-year-old from Canton, Massachusetts and never forgot seeing Bob Hope in 1968. The things these kids got out of being off the line and watching that show uh, was a fantastic morale boost. In his audiences, he always made sure that the first 40 rows were enlisted. And then the officers could sit behind that. Entertainer Wayne Newton, the future Mr. Las Vegas, first arrived in Vietnam in 1966. They asked us not to go with Mr. Hope simply because his was such a big show that they could play him in Saigon and Da Nang, but they couldn't send him to other places that were much smaller units. And so both times we ended up in the sticks and and in the boonies and in the rain and in the mud. I remember we'd visit hospitals at night after the show. Uh, The soldiers were realistic about their injuries and wanted something to lift them a little bit. So he'd just walk up, walk into a a room with 
40 beds and guys lying in traction and say, all right, everybody up. <laughs> One of those wounded soldiers was a 22-year-old artillery officer from Midland, Texas named Tommy Franks. I was in the hospital uh, at Christmas time in Saigon. Bob Hope came through with Raquel Welch. It was absolutely magnificent. Bob, are these men really so starved for affection? Oh. At that time, I had no idea what USO was, Molly, but, I, but I knew exactly who Raquel was, and so it was absolutely terrific. In the latter half of the 60s, when public opinion turned against the war, it hit the USO hard. Many mistakenly saw the USO as an arm of our military. You'll remember it, Ollie, back during the Vietnam time when if, if you were a soldier, if you were a Marine, if you were an airman, and you were associated with the war, it had to be bad. Recruiting stars to go and entertain the troops became increasingly difficult. Johnny Grant, a Los Angeles disc jockey and a USO veteran of Korea, made 14 trips to Vietnam. I took a lot of heat during the Vietnam War, and there were certain people that would not go on with me. And I understood that. That, that, that was their right. But uh, it was in my heart to go out there to try to keep their morale up. I was in a group, Tommy James and the Shondells. The Rock and Roll Society basically stood against the war in Vietnam. Rock musician and producer Kenny Laguna also didn't like the treatment he received for supporting the USO. I remember there was a radio station that dropped a record because I went on to a military base. And they found out, and it was like they had the audacity to connect that. I was talking to the guys at the Big Red One one day, and they said, we have our own Big Red One. And I knew what they were talking about. And I said, you mean Ann Margaret? And they, yeah, she's our gal. He really admired her as a performer, and I knew that she'd end up on the Christmas tour sooner or later. Actress Ann Margaret was one of Hollywood's sexiest and most popular movie stars. Johnny Grant encouraged the boys in the Big Red One to send her an invitation to visit them in Vietnam. I said, well, why don't some of you write a letter? And I brought that letter home to Ann Margaret, and she accepted right then. So she and a few other people went over, and they were a big smash. And then she went back once more with uh, Bob Hope. What was Bob Hope like to be with? Oh, he was, um, he was something. He truly loved the military loved all the gentlemen and ladies. I got something for you here. You do? Ready for this? Oh, look at that! <laughs> look at that! Bring back a few memories, doesn't it? Oh, boy! Yes, well, that was 68. That's right. Oh, yes, I remember the dress. I most certainly do. My goodness. The USO's John Hansen spoke to the widow of a Vietnam veteran who was deeply affected by Anne Margaret's kindness. She said, well, my husband died of cancer a few months ago. When he was in Vietnam, he was badly wounded. And uh, when he woke up in the hospital, he saw this beautiful red-haired angel. He thought he was dead. He thought he'd gone to heaven. And he realized it was Anne Margaret. And she told him that he was going to be okay. Whenever stories about Vietnam came on television, her husband's mood would darken. He'd get a little depressed. But whenever Ann Margaret showed up on TV, he said, you know, she held my hand in Vietnam. So she said, I just wanted to thank you for helping a good man feel appreciated. The Vietnam era also had returning stars from World War II tours. Singer Francis Langford and veteran comedian Jerry Colonna. 
a young Jerry Goodwine from Brookfield, Missouri, remembers seeing a show by Martha Ray on one of the Southeast Asia tours she did nine years in a row. They had the show inside their messel, and of course Martha was the big mouth, and she put on a great show. What's the, the, the worst living conditions for the USO that you've been on? Well, flying back and forth, getting shelled, you know, in, in uh, Vietnam. Well, what's wrong with my dancing for these fellas? Well, there are an awful lot of witnesses to a crime. <laughs> Go less. Actress Connie Stevens, who was a 16-year-old had entertained troops in Korea, visited Vietnam for the first time on Bob Hope's 1969 Christmas tour. We had to immediately lift off the stage and fly right back to Thailand, where they put us up, and it had to be 120 degrees, and then get up in the morning and fly back through a corridor where you could have been shot out of the air. I told you I have pictures. This is Vietnam. Yes. Yeah. And of course, Bob's got a the red feet. dress. Yeah. And, and there's not a guy who served in Vietnam that doesn't really, that saw a USO show. They all talk about the red dress. Sure. I had some nerve to wear this red dress. I mean, I Everybody just. Loved it. You know, the funniest thing is, I chose the dress because it was so hot in the jungle. Yeah. And when I think of it now, I wouldn't let my daughter go out to dress like that. You're watching more of Wayne Newton's 2003 Holiday USO Tour in the Persian Gulf. When War Stories returns, the last troops leave Vietnam, and the USO is once again on the hot seat. to be back in Vietnam. December 1972, Bob Hope performed his last Christmas show in Vietnam. Your dad, in spite of some, some fairly hostile uh, opinion out in Hollywood, continued to go to visit the troops in Vietnam. Absolutely he continued to go. He was not supporting the officers or the plan or the strategy or the Pentagon. He was there for the troops. Those were his guys. The USO recognized that the unpopularity of the war made the transition back to civilian life a harder one for the returning Vietnam vets, so it offered assistance with job searches, housing, education, and substance abuse. We talk a lot about entertainment. It's 100% of what people understand about the USO, but it's about 20% of what we do. 80% of what we do is the daily care and feeding of the morale and welfare of troops who are stationed a long way from home. They also decided to establish USO centers in major international airports with a rather simple goal. To provide a respite for some soldier who's far away from home and doesn't know if he or she will ever see home again. Ron Martin was a young Marine from Jacksonville, North Carolina when he began using the USO airport centers while on active duty in Southeast Asia in the early 1970s. To have a place you can go into, actually sit in a comfortable seat, have a cool drink or have a free sandwich and just have an opportunity to relax, it's, it's a good experience. But the USO was in jeopardy once again after the Vietnam War and the draft ended. Once the draft ended, people forgot that there's a military. In 1974, the Department of Defense and the United Way put together a Blue Ribbon Commission to see if the USO was really needed. Uh, it went to every USO center and came back and said, if there weren't a USO, we'd have to invent one. One more speed bump, the USO survived. <laughs> 
For the next decade, small USO shows took place in veterans' hospitals around the country. Along with Bob Hope, they featured athletes in Miss Americas. Shows were also done on military installations around the world, but Hope didn't return to active duty overseas until 1983 when he took a troop that included actress Brooke Shields to Beirut. To stand so close to talent like this, I'd even work for gratis. Work for gratis. Last time she made a free appearance was at her own birth. <laughs> even then she charged the doctor because he had a front row seat. Rock and roll began leaving its indelible mark on the USO during the 1980s when members of bands like the Doobie Brothers, Kansas, and Crosby, Stills, and Nash began performing on USO tours. Joan Jett also pitched in, performing her hard-rocking act on military bases around the world more than 60 times since 1980. What drives you to keep doing this time and time again? Even though you have to go in harm's way, even though you're in very uncomfortable circumstances, why do you keep doing this? It's the connection with the troops. It's the stories. It's talking about home. It's hearing about their families and their kids and sharing pictures. The gratefulness that oozes out from them. And it's, it's you know, it's just a really sort of a reciprocal sort of love. Is there a difference between the military audience and the civilian audience? I think there there is. It's sort of, you know, there's an intangible. They're a great rock and roll crowd and... Uh, they're very enthusiastic, very vocal. When you play I Love Rock and Roll, what do they do? They go crazy. Yeah, you know, it's a, oh, you know, the dancing, the screaming, the fists go up in the air. It's great. It's a wonderful feeling. More of the Wayne Newton 2003 holiday tour in the Persian Gulf. The same area Bob Hope did his final USO tour in, at the age of 87. That's next on War Stories. I introduced him in Bahrain on his last show ever. In December of 1990, with troops deployed in the Persian Gulf, 87-year-old Bob Hope made his final USO tour, bringing some Christmas cheer to the men and women of Operation Desert Shield in Bahrain and Saudi Arabia. I knew that would be it, because uh, when he got in the night before, I was there waiting for him, and he said, I'm tired. The tireless living symbol of the USO had headlined nearly 60 tours over his five-decade association with the organization. USO's other workhorse, DJ Johnny Grant, has never forgotten the 56 USO tours he was on since Korea. And it seems some of the troops haven't either. You start getting letters telling how much your appearance meant to him, and, you know, it's a great feeling. Throughout the 1990s, USO tours went to Somalia, Haiti, and other hot spots around the world. Joan Jett continued to entertain troops in places like Bosnia, with her musical partner, Kenny Laguna. Years ago, they were putting together a USO tour, and they called Joan, and they said, uh, you know, we're going to play Pearl Harbor, we're going to do this, and it was like a vacation tour. And Joan says, you know, why don't you send me someplace lousy? And they did. Why not take some of those nice holiday tours? Well, you know, I think 
it really boils down to that it's about boosting morale. And I figure if you know you're in Pearl Harbor, hanging out on the beach, you know you don't really need that same morale boost as the kids, you know, going to the bathroom in a hole. And um, I get a kick out of going to places that aren't cushy. A month after the attack of September 11, 2001, U.S. forces are back at war, and the U.S.O. is there with them. With thousands of troops deployed once again to the Persian Gulf and Afghanistan, the USO is right there on the front lines, this time with some new blood. I volunteered for the USO shortly after 9-11. I'd uh, felt, you know, just a need to, to support, you know, the troops. You'll be able to come back to Baghdad with your children and your grandchildren. The actors, like me, myself, I don't do the soft shoe thing. I, I just basically go on what's called a handshake tour, and I shake hands and sign autographs and talk to the troops and, and basically acknowledge my gratitude for what they're doing out there and the fact that we just show up means so much to them. When September 11th happened, I think so many Americans were frustrated. We just didn't know what to do. I felt so lucky to be able to go on a tour so I could at least thank some of our soldiers, tell them how much it meant to me. Right after 9-11, we called some of our, our buddies in the Pentagon and said, send us. We wanted to go someplace that, you know, where the action was. The action turned out to be Afghanistan, where U.S. troops were sent to root out al-Qaeda terrorists and the Taliban regime. We had guys going out, chasing Taliban, and coming back while we were still playing. Wayne Newton has been entertaining troops since Vietnam, and he's now taken on the leadership role Bob Hope performed for decades. What was the most difficult of all the USO trips you've been on? The most difficult one was Iraq. The heat was something like I have never witnessed in my life. And I live in Las Vegas. When we sat down on the ground, it was 140 degrees. And uh, there were seven, 8,000 troops standing there waiting for a show. Gary, you're in Baghdad. What the heck is going on here? Good question. <laughs> Good question. Madness. It's everybody winging it and trying to figure out what's going on. Kid Rock playing Sweet Home Alabama and, you know, uh, f f singing his own lyrics. And what's the pay for all this fun? This is what we ask of an entertainer. Go to a hotel that might not be all that comfortable, work until midnight and do it all over the next day. And for that, we don't pay you a nickel. They're just the best audience that you'll ever have in your life. And, and I tell all the performers that go, this will change your life. The USO currently operates 118 centers worldwide and serves more than 5 million servicemen and their families annually. Programs now include childcare, support groups, and crisis counseling. 50 years from now, will there still be a USO? If there's still a military, there'll be a USO. USA! USO! The USO is going to be wherever military members are until every single one of them is home. I've got you by my side both day and night. That's Chris Isaac performing in the Persian Gulf. And check out the guy on bass. It's one of Hollywood's best actors, Gary Sinise. We'll be right back with more war stories right after this. Because you're mine. It's been called an island of tranquility in a sea of danger. 
The few hours of peace and the little taste of home that the USO has brought to soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines stationed around the world since 1941 has been as crucial to the military as any weapon or strategy. President Dwight D. Eisenhower once said that morale is the greatest single factor in successful wars. And for that, many thank the USO. Theirs is a war story that deserves to be told. Shall we? Love you. From everybody here at War Stories and the Fox News Channel, good night. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.